0: All right. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to the first episode of the, um, provisionally titled "Not investing advice podcast. So this is Anthony. Nice. Um, yeah. So then we did Twitter spaces. Some of you may know, um, a couple of weeks back and we thought that was pretty successful. So we're basically going to try and do this podcast every, say, couple of weeks or so. And basically the plan with this is we'll try and talk about some sort of recent events in crypto topics in crypto and Web3 that we think are interesting. So that's kind of like what the plan is. So I guess with that, let's just jump in. So I think what we wanted to talk about today is um, the recent uh, Celsius bankruptcy and then um, sort of what's up with that, what information that we revealed, what we can kind of learn from that. The way we're going to do this basically is like Max actually read about the Celsius bankruptcy and I didn't. So Max is going to basically tell you everything about it. And I'm going to ask a bunch of dumb questions to Max. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that's the plan. I don't know, Max, you want to
1: tell us all about this? Yeah, let's, let's start with a little bit of an intro on Celsius for people who maybe haven't been following uh, as clearly with uh, every little detail that's been coming out, the little trickle that's been coming out over the past few weeks. So Celsius is a company that kind of blends TradFi and uh, crypto. Basically, they take deposits in crypto and they promise a certain yield on that crypto. And how they do that? They don't say, so they can do whatever they want basically with the crypto and uh, they go and they try to earn yield on it and give it back to the investors when they ask for their deposits back. So that's the basic business model of Celsius. It's also the basic business model of BlockFi, of Voyager, of a lot of other companies, Nexo, which is kind of having some struggles right now, but hasn't filed uh, for bankruptcy yet. And all of these cases are going to be kind of intertwined in that, uh, some contagion happened, but they're all going to have their own little intricacies. And the great thing about Celsius is they wrote a very nice long report as part of their chapter Eleven filings that kind of details everything that they did. So, uh, that's for our enjoyment, I guess. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, I think, the uh, sort of, uh, I guess just jumping in, Maxa. Uh... It's kind of like, I only realized after the fact, after I started hearing about these blowups, I was like wondering, as I was listening to these books, like, just who are these guys? Right. And it's like, why haven't I heard of these guys? And then I realized shit, like I had seen all these billboards, like driving around town, all of these like 5% on your crypto, like inflation is high. You got to invest with us. We'll give you 4%, you get a debit card, all of that. So it seems like sort of these, I guess this broadly called CDFI group of firms where like a bunch of guys kind of like advertising really heavily trying to say like we get a bunch of percent being like not very transparent where the like yields are actually coming from right yeah it's kind of funny to see like that was kind of that's where they all were yeah
1: mm-hmm. and and maybe it's useful to like talk about the the fatal flaw of like the fixed yield business model right yeah because yeah no i think that's good predict the yield so you end up doing crazy risky things to try and get the yield and Especially when everybody else is doing the same thing, and so you guys are all kind of raising those fixed yields that you're promising to try and acquire users. um You end up with this like twenty percent yield, like we saw on Anchor, right? And it's just like that was where the yields, the fixed yields, were kind of that was the top of the range in in DeFi, right? But in in TradFi, or, or not in TradFi, but in like CDFI, there was a similar thing going on and they all were like kind of racing to the top of the yields and that was causing a lot of strain internally where on one side, you're promising users a fixed yield and then they give you their money and then you say, oh shit, now I have to actually generate those yields. And That's where the hard part happens.
0: It's kind of interesting. This is actually related to some classic questions in TradFi about basically, uh, should we let financial institutions compete on rates? I think like TradFi has like flip flop back and forth on this. And I think, uh, there was a time, I think in like the eighties or so where, um, banks were literally not allowed to compete by offering higher rates. Everyone was like forced. There was a cap on, I think interest rates of around, I think four or 5% or so. I believe this was called regulation Q. And I think basically the worry that regulators had at the time was exactly what we're seeing in the CD5 blowups that basically competition in rates leads to banks like offering rates they can't really justify they can't really support by making like reasonably safe loans and then so it's kind of interesting to see cd5 kind of like exploring the same process of evolution as i think uh tradfi basically saying like should we allow competition of, like in rates like you can very quickly attract a lot of money if you offer the highest rate but then you have to figure out how to actually pay that rate right and then sort of you perhaps like worry that competition in like Financial markets basically incentivizes not like profitable, low margin, lean, efficient businesses, but basically incentivizes Ponzi's. Right. So I think it's a kind of interesting analogy to drive by there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, one of the things that crypto seen is that a lot of the investors and the builders are coming from tech instead of from finance, um, which is a good thing and a bad thing, cause it means, you know, we actually get stuff done and we actually build stuff, <laughs> but at the same time, it means, um, that that tech, like build up a network effect, Uber, Google, Facebook, these guys who kind of PayPal, classic example of spending to acquire the network and build the network effect. Um, May not work as well in finance where there's mercenary capital and where uh, you end up kind of exposing yourself to a lot of risk by doing that. Um, So that's- no, I
0: totally agree with this point. I think like- The thing is that I think like all of consumer tech basically has in back of mind the idea that sort of growing fast is really important. And moreover, there's like increasing returns to scale network effects and stuff. Right. And the whole strategy of growth hacking of like competing, sort of like handing out crazy amounts of money to users to get big is that once we get big, like margins will kind of fix themselves. Right. And I think that you can sort of see an element of this kind of culture in Web3. It's like, Luna is like, look, we're going to be the biggest stablecoin. We're going to run a totally inviable model until we get big, and then we're going to try and fix it when we get big, right? And I guess, like, uh, you kind of, like, I wonder the extent to which this is driven. I think I agree with you. It's basically sort of the people going into... Web three are like people who have experience in tech. So arguably they may have like naively mapped these like strategies and models from tech over. And it's like, it's like really not a good fit for finance. The network effects here are not necessarily like um, strong enough to justify doing this. I think I agree with you that like capital is merceries. There's no stickiness sort of, you can't rely on basically if you have a big enough network, like the money will stick with you, even if you lower rates. So yeah, I think like the, like, I really like what you point out the culture problem, I think is really an issue here. Like. Um, like an economic model that works in consumer tech sort of just is not a good fit for the economics of basically finance uh, settings. If you can't afford to pay 20% rates when you're small, you can't afford to pay what you're big either. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's not all bad to have these tech people because they really know how to build and so, which is what we need right now in crypto, yeah. but we need a few adults in there and we need a few <laughs> you know, yeah. risk managers. And it seems like that may have not been going on. So, yeah. Should we jump into the specifics on Celsius? Yeah, let's jump in. So a few numbers to start off with. Um, as of the report, it looks like there was about $5.4 billion of liabilities and only about $4.2 billion of assets. Um, so it's a $1.2 billion overhang. And That is an
0: insane amount of losses. Yeah.
1: Depending on how you factor in the Celsius token, it um, looks like they had... A couple hundred million more Celsius token assets than liabilities, so it might be closer to 1.4 billion. Um, so that's huge, right? Uh, not unprecedented if you look at the other kind of overhangs that exist. Um, and there has been some contagion, right? But what I found really surprising is you go in, the two major contagion events were Luna, which we've already discussed a little bit and three eras capital right luna was this uh big uh coin with the stable coin attached that uh, went to zero very fast and they in their report claim they only lost about 17 million if i remember correctly from luna which is really good i mean consider a lot of people all lost a lot more than that in the luna situation and according to their report they only lost 40 million being loaned to three arrows.
0: I recall, uh, someone posted on Twitter that they were poking fun. I think at Voyager, right. For like losing more in the three hours capital crash.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Voyager had, I think 350,000 or 350 million in us dollar or stables went to three Arrows, and another 15,000 bitcoins. It was like something astronomical. It was like 600 uh, million lost in a loan that wasn't repaid by three hours so uh compared to that looking pretty good but then why is there still the why does the overhang still look so big right is the question like those are the things we can safely say okay everybody was making those mistakes nobody saw that coming you get a pass on those right and in fact good job for not getting too exposed to those but at the same time like why is there such a big overhang left, right? And that's I guess what we're gonna get into, but that is wild that there's still the one point one five billion left over unaccounted for in overhang.
0: No, I totally agree. It's like they lost what? Like pretty much a third of the entirety of sort of a, a deposits of them, I guess, was like lost. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think one of the biggest chunk we can start off with um, is basically an overcollateralized loan that Celsius had taken out. And I'll explain what that is in a second. They had taken out an overcollateralized loan. They repaid their loan and didn't get their collateral back. Okay. Hmm. So here's how that went down, basically overcollateralized loans in crypto, it's like the main paradigm for lending on chain, you give a bunch of crypto, usually volatile crypto like Bitcoin ETH to the lender. And in exchange, you borrow some stable coins from them. Usually it can be the other way around too, but usually it's the volatile asset is the collateral and the stable coins are borrowed. And so the volatile assets kind of cover the lender in case you face some insolvency or can't repay the loan in which case they can liquidate the Bitcoin, right? Or liquidate Ethereum and recover their principal. Um, So this is basically what happened. They went to a private lender. This was in a period before kind of Aave and Compound were big. Um, They went to a private lender, they negotiated about a $500 million loan. The loan went off, they gave the collateral, they got the borrow. And then when they were gonna go pay back the loan, they sent the money and then after they had sent the money realized that the collateral wasn't there.
0: It's <laughs> kind so, of insane, but I, so, so like, did, did they reveal any information about who this, uh, who this party was or they just said that was, uh,
1: yeah, I, I forget the name, but it's, it seems like they're, they're trying to repay, they're like repaying 5 million every month or something, which
0: I see. I see yeah.
1: like a lot, but when you consider it's 500 yeah. million,
0: um, does that entity still exist or did they go under also?
1: Um, That's a good question. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head, but yeah,
0: doesn't really matter. seems yep. like
1: they've been repaying. This is
0: actually related to some facts in TradFi also. Actually, there's a related instance in, I think, uh, 08. Um, it wasn't kind of the main part of 08, but it was kind of an interesting instance of basically um, treasury backed repo is sort of a very similar secured loan kind of structure to these like uh, crypto collateralized loans, right? So the idea is basically like, I want to lend money to you maybe, right? Um, I wanna make sure that this uh, money is backed, right? And so I require you to deposit a bond worth more than the money I lend you in order to um, ensure that you're gonna pay back that debt, right? And so usually there's like treasuries, bonds, stuff like that, right? So say I lend you sort of um, $98,000 against a $100,000 treasury, right? So there's actually a funny instance where sort of treasuries became very valuable in the 08 crisis and so what happened is basically so normally you think of it as when i lend money to you then sort of i'm at risk of you not paying back right so that's the usual way the credit risk goes right but in this case i lend money to you you give me a treasury worth more than the money i lent you right so in fact sort of like you worry about my credit risk as well because exactly the same as in this instance sort of if you're Paying back your loan and I can't give you back my treasury, right? You're actually out $2,000. And so there was actually an instance in Traffi of something quite similar, basically. of uh, There was a case where there were mass defaults on returning collateral on these debt contracts. Um, where basically, I think like the, 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 the thing this illustrates is that sort of collateralized debt is not by itself a kind of cure all for credit risk, right? Sort of when you structure a loan, that kind of involves basically what, me giving you assets and you giving me assets, right? One leg of that trade is worth more than the other leg of that trade, right? So somebody's taking credit risk in this system, right? Because like either I'm lending you money and you're not giving me enough collateral, in which case you can default, or I'm lending you money and you're giving me too much collateral, in which case I can default, right? So I think this is a surprisingly like universal principle that basically there's credit risk on some leg of the trade, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think, and that's kind of why Aave and Compound and Euler and all these other decentralized lending protocols are so powerful is because yes, there's going to be credit risk, but if we can make sure that the entity that you are, that is the counterparty that kind of has the credit risk attached to it is a decentralized protocol. So the, there's no like fraud that can happen. There's nothing. It's just like the contracts are there, right? That can. um, there's still gonna be a little bit of credit risk because there's still ways that a lending protocol can fail and become insolvent, but it's gonna be um, a lot more secure than just kind of trusting some random counterparty on an exchange, right?
0: Yeah. And I think like sort of this, this kind of puts to the principle, you kind of, the design that fixes this, as you say, and TreadFi actually uses this design also, I think in the tri-party repo market. So in bilateral repo, basically we interact, I give you money, you give me the bond. And then you run the risk that I don't give you my bond back. Right. And the solution that people found to this is in some segments of the European repo market, and I think in parts of the US repo market also, um, we we, we just insert a credibly neutral third party into the system. So the idea is like, I lend you money, you put your bond in a pot that I can't access and the role of that pot that entity is to say like they're keeping the bond and if you default they give me the bond but they hold it and so i can't use the bond um while that's in the pot so i guess like you can sort of see ave and compound as serving the role of this kind of smart contract pot right um sort of an entity that is does not have the discretion to basically um does not have the discretion to misuse the collateral because like operated by sort of a set of a set of rules basically instead of discretionary yeah
1: And I think, you know, that touches, we're getting a little bit off track, but that is a really important thing, I think. If you look at all of the kind of situations in DeFi that seem to work, exchanges, over collateralized lending, um, futures, it seems like these are all the cases where in TradFi you would need an escrow party, right?
0: That's a very interesting observation, yeah.
1: So, yeah, that's, I think, something to think about a little more is like, you're building a protocol where is the smart contract acting as the escrowing agent that you would need to do the same thing in off the blockchain right
0: and it almost makes you think that if you wanted to run cd5 and if you wanted to make CDFi actually work right it seems like you could like make these kinds of services um which sort of gives some discretion over like the terms of the loan to the CDFI entity. But basically like you create services that don't do all of what Aave does, but basically does the escrow part of that for the CDFI institutions, right? Like you could imagine doing something like saying that the CDFI, like exactly in this case, right, if um, Celsius put its collateral um, in like an escrow service, right? And then Celsius could always look at where the collateral was and be guaranteed in a sense that basically the third party could not just steal the collateral, right? You can imagine a design, which is like a hybrid of like sort of some discretion on the CD5 um, operator, plus like some commitments to follow rules, for example, so like you can trace where collateral is, you can trace like how much money is uh, left in these pots. Yeah. So it's a very interesting insight. I think it's like, there's a potential for sort of limited kind of ESCO services. Uh, yeah, like interacting with some of these applications
1: yeah and i think those contracts by the way do exist already so if you want one of those go look on you know wherever your favorite contract repository is and you'll probably find a well audited version of escrow or whatever and if you need some extra if you need an extra line or two added to the contract you can hire an engineer and an auditing firm and that way you're not going to lose 500 million dollars you know it's probably Mm -hmm worth it to do
0: that. Um. I guess, like, uh, thinking about this, though, if you wanted to solve this problem, right, you kind of, uh, so suppose you're Celsius, right, and then you um, borrow a bunch of money from these guys, you put some collateral in a pot, right? It's kind of an Oracle problem to evaluate whether Celsius has paid back the money they borrowed, right? If part of the money is in the TradFi pipes, right? Mm -hmm. So then you kind of, like, you, you have to solve a kind of, like, dispute resolution kind of problem. Right. So I think like putting the money in a pot, um, like sort of prevents the person, the lender from like, say, say I lend you a bunch of money, right. And you put your collateral in a pot, we might program the pot to only release the collateral back to you if we come to agreement. Right. But then you run into a kind of holdup problem that if we can't realistically come to agreement quickly on whether you pay back your loan or not, right. I can kind of hold you up because the collateral is stuck in the pot. Right. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. It and seems this...
0: like one design would be to sort of have like... Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah. Go ahead, go. You... Oh, yeah. I was going to say, you might think like... This seems like a situation where like a DAO court system might um, be useful, right? You could imagine like on-chain collateralized trade lending or something like that. Where basically you have DAO, like a sort of DAO like dispute resolution entity where sort of we can sue each other in court and there's a like two or three multisig where I hold one vote, you hold one vote, and the DAO holds the other vote, right? And then sort of like the DAO ends up deciding uh, upon looking at reviewing events like whether like you upheld enough of the sort of um, rules to get your collateral back or something like that. Yeah,
1: there is something like this on
0: um, mm. I forget which insurance protocol it is, but
1: some. Some like you, you, the, the Dow insurance DAO decides whether the claim is valid and then you can appeal to a higher.
0: Oh, was that Nexus uh, Mutual,
1: perhaps, or it's someone not else? Nexus. Yeah. It's a different I one. See. I forget, I forget which one. Interesting. Maybe insurance. Yeah. I don't oh. want to say their names too much over here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Anyways, yeah.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. This is kind of an egregious example because it's easily fixed by yeah, most yeah. basic application of blockchain. <laughs> um, so the second big chunk that I found uh, is another over collateralized loan uh, to Tether. And this time it was Celsius not repaying. But the thing that happened is the margin that Tether was holding, so it was a billion-dollar loan, by the way, and the margin, which was in BTC and ETH that Tether was holding, uh, was – Worth more than that, but was getting into the red zone where you kind of want to margin call them and unwind the position.
0: Or hold on, hold on. So just so I understand, you're saying Celsius was lending to Tether. So Celsius Celsius was, was borrowing from Tether. Tether a billion yeah USDT, which is Tether, and I see, I see. they yeah.
1: provided collateral Bitcoin, and ETH collateral, which was worth I see, I see. more than yeah. a billion dollars at the time, right? I see and. As time went on, the price of Bitcoin and ETH fell, and so the collateral began to be worth less and less. It was still worth more than a billion, but it was kind of getting close to the parity mark, right? So Tether issues the margin call to Celsius, and Celsius, for whatever reason, decides to have an orderly liquidation of those assets instead of repaying the loan. So at the time of this happened, the assets were worth 1.1 billion and Celsius only had to repay 1 billion
0: to get that. So it's like a 100 mil loss. Yeah. So you you get another 100 mil loss on that stuff. Yeah.
1: Right. But I guess that's just illiquidity or they didn't have a billion that they could repay. I mean, it seems like the Bitcoin and ETH markets are pretty liquid. So you're not going to face that much. You can probably find a, an over-the-counter buyer for that stuff pretty quickly. If you give them a, you know, $100 million a lot to lose off that.
0: That's an interesting thing to notice, though, because uh, sort of, that's a lot of Bitcoin and Ethereum to be sold at once. So I guess two questions there, which is one, like, I wonder whether, do they report the timing of these trades in their uh, bankruptcy filing at all?
1: I think they may have, but in the kind of... Summary report, which was already, it it would
0: actually be interesting to like, match the timing up, right? Because it seems nobody had realized as far as I could tell that sort of, there was a billion dollar Bitcoin Ethereum collateral position being liquidated. Right now, even that I think is like big enough to potentially move markets. Like ETH uh, market cap at that time was what? Like a couple hundred billion or so. Right. So you're selling, like you're liquidating something close to like a percent of all outstanding ETH or something like that. Right. But, um, uh, something like a small, some fraction of a percent. So it seems like interesting to see whether that did like show up as one of like the big sales, um, and one of the big price spikes in the data. I guess the other question is, uh, it's not clear that Tether got the billion dollars back there, right? If you're selling like a billion dollars of Bitcoin Ethereum, even 1.1 billion, if you have like 10% margins on that, it's not clear in that market that you're getting like your whole billion out. Right. So
1: yeah, but I think, I mean. I've heard, I've not looked into myself and I'm not, you know, buying and selling billions of dollars of Ethereum and Bitcoin, but I've heard from people that are, you know, talking about this, that the, the markets are pretty deep in OTC and mm-hmm. over the counter. So we don't That's see maybe. that on the books, right? Obviously, if you were to just go dump a billion dollars of Bitcoin on the books right now, of course, that would yeah. break the price. But the reason that slippage usually occurs from a theoretical perspective is that uh, it needs to occur for market makers to not get sniped, right? Basically, the the conditional expectation of the value of Bitcoin, given that somebody's dumping a billion dollars of it into me, is way lower than the expectation of the value of Bitcoin without that, right? And so if I know that the reason that somebody's selling the Bitcoin is because... Uh, they're forced to sell it that same conditional expectation argument doesn't necessarily apply right so unless you think that that you know strike where celsius got margin called is another place where a bunch of other people were getting margin called which could be but
0: i guess it's uh it's I agree with this. That part of it is that you charge price impact because you worry about the informational effect on orders, right? But I guess the other thing is inventory um, risk or inventory, right? Because the thing is that you got a billion dollars, you need to place that with someone, right? And the thing is that yeah, I guess like that's an interesting empirical question. Um, just like what counts as big in OTC markets? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like when people say like it's pretty liquid, does that mean like a couple million, couple tens of millions, hundreds of billions or billions or whatever? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, question
1: and it probably depends on whether you know if tether comes in and says hey we're just liquidating this loan here can yeah. we yeah you
0: know,
1: maybe that's a difference oh situation. you know
0: i heard an interesting hypothesis the other day um about another factor that contributed to general market condition stress which this was i hadn't heard before it was very interesting the argument was that otc desks operate and use a lot of leverage right and the idea is that if they're carrying and dumping a lot of inventory they want to like borrow as much of that as they can um to um basically be able to like um with small capital deployed um like trade a lot of assets and sort of what i heard was actually the leverage to the otc desks dried up so the thing is like a lot of the guys providing leverage to the otc desks were precisely celsius and these guys right and so the argument i heard was basically that sort of otc desks were unable to process as much orders because the guys who were giving them leverage like all blew up so i know if you've heard anything on those lines but that's kind of an interesting uh, interesting thing
1: that is interesting. I had not heard yeah. that. That that could be a reason, certainly. Yeah,
0: and so I think, so it's I think like advice. it's like it's precisely under your hypothesis that sort of orders don't move markets too much when these intermediaries are pretty functional, um, and when they're able to basically take stuff, hold it, and dump it on someone else, right? Um, sort of it could be that like these guys exacerbate price impact precisely because they're stressed, which by the way also happens in TradFi. That I think sort of corporate bond markets I think do poorly, um, when the corporate bond dealers Goldman. Uh, um, Goldman and so on, um, are unable to leverage or, or are stressed on other parts of their balance sheet, and as a result, can't fund the, the bond trading desk as much. Yeah, so it's like very interesting the parallels here, but I think that one I hadn't heard before that kind of another contagion channel through like stressing the OTC desks. Yeah, that's
1: true. And I think the other thing is, like, from what I've heard, Three Arrows was a big player in the OTC markets, right? Hmm. Alameda yeah. was a big player, they were sitting on the side, yeah, market. yeah, like, um. You know, Delphi was singed from Luna, Jump singed from Luna. Like, so this, all this stuff was, like, kind of, they were all on the sidelines, it seems like. And so it wasn't just that they had lower leverage, it was that the players themselves may have been sitting on the bench. (laughs) Right? Yeah.
0: It's pretty interesting. I feel like, sort of, I mean, I think academic finance has finally come around to this view, but, like, we had this old view that... um like markets are efficient, prices are expectations of value, stuff like that. I think like it's when you like participate and look a bit at these markets that you see so much like prices are there because there's like three guys with giant pots of money and they put the prices kind of where like they kind of want to put them. I think like you saw similar things in volatility markets where I had heard and this is like hearsay, but I'd heard from some guy I know um, who trades options that sort of like vol was elevated for some period of time, I think two or three years ago, right? I asked the guy, "Why? why? Why is vol trading so high? And he's like, Yeah, there's this guy, there's this, like, firm that was making most of the markets for those things, and they blew up. (laughs) So it went from, like, a three-firm market to a two-firm market. And the reason prices are high is because these guys who used to hold a lot of this and sell it, like, blew up, right? So I think it's, like, incredible the extent to which, like, pretty much in these markets, in some of these markets, there's, like, two or three big guys. And prices are where they are, basically, because of the actions of, like, two or three guys, and, like, one guy blowing up, like, basically causes everything to go haywire, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then if you're in a market like ball, like... It's hard to break in there,
0: right? Because you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Unless you're... In crypto, right...
0: like, much it's... the same, right? It's like the returns to scale of, like, having the know-how to price the options, having, I guess, in crypto the know-how, and also, like, the connections to the OTC desk, the knowledge of, like, how to... Tra- the infra to trade these things is, like, I guess, like people maybe, I guess, didn't appreciate, I guess, like everyone had in back of their mind that there must be a ton of these hedge funds. It must not be that concentrated, right? The idea that like two or three guys, I guess, Alameda, three arrows, so on, were like this fraction of the market that you can literally point to a large fraction of the CD5 guys. And they're literally lending to like three pots of money. I think that like in hindsight is a pretty shocking sort of realization of how the market structure actually looked like. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I think, uh, maybe we'll, um, just to keep on time. Um, I don't think we're close to through with the, um, Celsius bankruptcy, but I think we'll call it for this session and yeah. So in the next episode of this podcast, which should come in another, um, I think week or two, um, yeah, uh, Max and I, I think we'll just keep talking about the Celsius bankruptcy and kind of do the same thing, talk about what happened, talk about like what we might learn from this, um, what we might, um, think about, about market structure going forwards and yeah, that's the plan. So. Yeah, thanks a lot, everyone, for tuning in to the first episode. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something. And then we will be back um, pretty soon um, with more stuff. Thanks a lot, everyone.